Hey there, this is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and an entrepreneur. For episode 007, I don't quite have James Bond, but I've gone one better. Today, I'm speaking to Taryn Newman, who is the co-founder of a company called Ripe Intelligence. Now, Ripe has revolutionized emergency management in Australia through the careful collation and presentation of data. What this means is that government agencies who respond to natural and man-made disasters like fires, floods, public disorders, rely on their products. It is an amazing entrepreneurial journey, so let's go and talk to him. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Taryn Newman and I'm one of the founders of my company, Ripe Intelligence. Ripe Intelligence is a company that I started with my business partner just over five years ago. And one of our core products that uh, most people out there would probably be aware of is Emergency Oz. Cool. So, what's what's Emergency Odds? Emergency Oz is a product that we started building in the early days to coordinate information, particularly around emergencies and um, fire, floods, all that type of stuff. So, national emergencies. National emergencies, mm-hmm. yeah, and bring it, bring all that information together in a coordinated and visual fashion. Really, it was born out of the fires in Victoria in 2009. I think that was sort of the catalyst of, of why it came about. I'd left the industry. I wasn't uh, in that space at the particular time, but uh, Luke and I were, we'd always been very good friends and we were colleagues in our earlier years. He was still in the space and he'd been involved in collecting a lot of the data and setting up a lot of the stuff for the, the Royal Commission that followed. And as we do, we'd hang out at his place and have a few drinks talk about everything and looking through all this week, I was looking, looking at with him one night and going, why, why couldn't we make some of this automated? And I think it really started, a lot of it started as a bit of a, just two boys having a bit of fun and a few drinks and mucking around. And the next thing is that then all became serious about 12, 18 months later. Like we, we got stuck into it and we, um, started collecting a lot of data and uh, obviously Victoria was the the patch that we understood because that's where we'd work, worked in our days of CFA. But then obviously right across Australia there was the the same issues, you know, with mm. fires go right across Australia, not just in Victoria obviously. Australia is a, a federation, not a confederation. So that means that each state is responsible for its own, own emergency management uh, Operations, so that's why there's different services in every different state. But there was no one at a top level, at a federal level, uh, coordinating all that data and bringing it together. Um, but as we've grown as a as a country, the, and particularly as the um, information world has continued to grow, there's people want information here now. They don't really care about uh, where where the borders are or the borders aren't. Um, so there was certainly this growing need for coordinated information both here and um, across the country. And that was where we saw a very niche offering um, to start to gather all that data and start to bring it together in a um, centralised fashion. Mm-hmm. So a government's not doing this already? No, no, I think um, governments are. And when we first started doing what we're doing, there was products in the marketplace. So it wasn't, it wasn't a factor that, the governments weren't doing doing it. They were. There, there was products in the marketplace before we started. I, I, 
what I where where I was coming from, where Luke and I were coming from, was that there was state based products, but no one had actually gone to that national level to the depth of what where we took our product. Um, there was product. There, there was product, and I, I acknowledge that there is product at that national level, but not to that same level of detail, that spatial context um, that we were able to do with the product um, that we created. A lot of it too came about because I left the industry and I was working um, across Australia. And I'm like, oh, this is just crazy that, like, you know, I'd be in Victoria one morning and then, you know, I'd be in West Australia that afternoon and then I'd be up in Queensland the following day. I go, well, why wouldn't I have just one app that just an apple is an apple is an apple? Like, Hmm. one one of the challenges is that they did have all different frameworks that um, in Victoria it might have been that a particular warning was pink and a... And over in Western Australia, another the same type of warning was uh, an orange colour, you know, just for argument's sake. And I'm going, well, why not just create one view so no matter where I am, if I'm in Victoria, whether I'm in Perth, whether I'm in far north Queensland, it was all the same. And that that was probably why – well, that was why we, we sort of went down that path. And it was – so it wasn't because the product didn't exist. So when you say the product, and I'm using inverted quotes here, what is the product? You said that it's an emergency management software or tool. Like, what what is it? Well, if you look at it, I suppose Emergency Oz is developed into a more of a platform. So we cover across mobile, being whether you're in um, native iOS, Android, Windows. Um, the web environment on your phone. So we try and cater, obviously, for as many different um, platforms as we can. Then you can go across onto the desktop so you can experience there. And, and the thing is it's all about that spatial awareness. Um, yes, you can look at it by trawling through a list, but it's about saying, well, I'm here, and then getting that visual context of going, well, well that fire is just only three roads away or it's actually three suburbs away around the corner. You know, it, it, and, and at the time when we first started it, that type of um, application wasn't around. Um, we'd started to do that. The, the other thing of what started ripe was it was crowdsourcing too. Like in the early days, um, so we go back five years, um, apps were... Apps were around, but they were sort of just starting uh, a little bit um, fairly new. Uh, A lot of the data that Luke had collected was from the likes of radio. So these were um, people ringing up and giving feedback. And we thought, oh, how could you do that? How could you do that in a more um, digitised sense, in an app sense? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what sort of led us to... um, start to pull some of our other business um, ideas together with our observations. And so it was about taking public information that was available and then bringing it all together and then going, well, what else do we need? We can actually start creating some of our own content by going to the public as well. Because it's all right. When, you, when you've got a small fire, agencies can manage it and, you know, not a problem. But once you had something the size of Black Saturday, everyone was overwhelmed. Mm. Whether you were, whether you were the community, whether you were the the fire agency, whatever, like it just was too much going on. Mm. So why not create the ability for people to communicate and create 
observations and let other people know what they were seeing, feeling, smelling, hearing. If you think about this, when you've spoken to people that have been involved in an emergency or some sort of uh, trauma or stress, or they'll, they'll revert to their senses. Mm. I remember, oh, you do remember, it was, I could hear it. It was so loud or it was, I, I see something, you know. So we played on that. So it was about, you can, you can see, hear, smell, feel, touch, you know, and we built a particular sensor, sensory observation framework around that where you could put in your observations about going, I see smoke or I smell smoke mm. or I see fire. And then giving it that spatial context. So we knew where people were actually reporting that. Yeah. One of the ones out of all of them, like fire works well. Fire is really, really um, works well in a spatial context when people smell smoke. So, say there's been a planned burn or there's been a fire somewhere um, around uh, around the place, and then you get those that sort of late afternoon wind change and it pushes it up into an area where the fire hadn't been. Then you'll see all these observations starting to pop up, mm-hmm. and people going, "Oh, I smell smoke," and, and not not knowing where the fire was because the fire was actually miles away. But there's, mm-hmm. The smoke's wafted all the way up so it's really interesting to sort of watch the data in that sense the other thing is uh, earthquakes earthquakes are really interesting to watch why um phenomenal amount of observations coming in in just a very short period of time obviously because you get an earthquake bang everyone's just gone and gone oh i i just felt an earthquake or I felt the ground move. So people open the app, report oh, it. Like, and, like we've, yeah. we've obviously over the last number of years, we've watched some of this happen, and it's, and it's and it's really interesting to see how much it sort of pans out. Like I can I can think of a number of scenarios, just even in the at the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, um, where we've watched all the observations coming because there's down the sort of the valley. Like Gippsland area has a bit of seismic activity every now and then, and it'll sort of push up into the 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 eastern suburbs area there, and you, yeah, you just see all that massive observations coming. It's really really interesting, and then it's got some serious like you can actually it gives you some serious data as well. Mm-hmm. But just from you know looking at it, it from a uh, technology point of view, it's exciting to actually see what technology can do um, in a real time sense. And I think that's the other the other important thing about right is ripe is about real-time information. So, I was going to ask about whether this kind of crowdsourced information has actually made a big impact because in the beginning, right, it was about aggregating information that was that government agencies were putting out. So, CFA was putting out data, SES was putting out data, Victoria Police, Vic Roads, whoever, they're all putting out data in separate spaces and they weren't all connected. But... Did you see a big so so ripe intelligence and emergency Australia the product aggregates that information into one place? But did you see a big um, change, or, or has this crowdsourced uh, element made a big difference to the business? I've seen a lot of change go on over the last five years in the space we've been in, um, without a doubt. Uh, when we first started, we were doing stuff that just wasn't around um, and the, to the credit of the agencies and, and that across Australia like they have moved uh, and, and sometimes you know as critical as we can be here um, what what is going on here in Australia is beyond some of the other places in the world like we, we do lead the world in so many ways in mm. what, what we're up to um, yes I, I've seen a lot of change go on does that mean that that 
where they no, there's always there's always more ways to innovate. Has the has the the, the crowdsourcing stuff um, done much? That, that that's a really interesting one. Uh, the as far as the agencies, they haven't done a lot. Um, in the early days, the original Fire Ready product, you could put photos in, so you could take photos and submit them in with the, the app. That then disappeared in their um, future versions that they released after that. But I think there will be a time where agencies start to use crowdsourcing information more and more. Like they, they, they use Twitter and Facebook and that obviously to push messages out. Mm. Um, but I think more purpose-built platforms of sourcing information will be something that will happen more and more in the future within emergency management. The, the other thing is, like, I remember you talk about how, you know, the different agencies had their different sources and all that sort of stuff. There has been a lot of work done um, across the sector now bringing that information together, which just wasn't there five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um so does that make you guys a little bit more obsolete? No, I don't think it makes us obsolete. I, I, look, it's it's because nice. initially you were solving a problem, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We were, we were, you know, we're we're a service based company in many ways. We're offering services. Um, it's nice to see that um, there has been that change. I don't, I don't think obsolete's not quite the word. It's more about it's now time for us to uh, innovate further. Mm-hmm. Is is the way I look, like to look at it. I don't think um, I don't think it's far. It's far from finished. There's there's so much you can still do, um, and we've you know we've taken them on a journey, and you know people have certainly um, looked to what we do, and then taken it back to their own um, own sort of organisations and implemented versions of it as well. Which you know it's good. So what's uh What's what's the future look like for you, Taryn? Um, as far as our future, I think we're in a very interesting time. Um, the whole global warming thing um, is, you know, we're seeing just recently even just like the massive fires in Canada. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot more. Uh, unfortunately, these days, just all the terrorism stuff that is, you know, been around in Europe. Um, the type of stuff that we're doing, you know, with that coordination of data and uh, around emergencies, and and that, I, I don't see it going away uh, in a hurry. I think um, the public as a whole is is seeking more and more of that type of information and want it even faster and faster. Yeah, we get it through Twitter, we get it through Facebook. But people still want it from the official sources, mm. and they they want to know what is going on and what their agencies are doing to respond to what is happening. Um, people also wanting it in a much more visual, um, dynamic um, delivery. Uh, gone are the days where you know it's just like a couple of lines of text is mm-hmm. acceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, people people want to be part of the story. You know, the other thing is just just because they're sitting here in Australia doesn't mean that they don't want to be actively knowing about it because it's on the other side of the world. Yes, we have to deliver the information to those that need it, but you can't dismiss the fact that the world's just a bunch of voyeurs too, and they they're just hungry for content. 
Um, so expanding is, you know, expanding and looking for future opportunities um, um, right across the globe. I, I see that as something that we'll probably um, lean more and more towards. Mm-hmm. And that's because technology can enable it too. Yeah. Um, so you can do that. Um, that's probably yeah, that's probably my main or our main focus at the moment. Would you say Ripe Intelligence is a, a technology company? No, not as such. I, I don't really think that we're a technology company. Um, where our core niche focus is more around about um, emergency management and the coordination of information that is available rather than focusing on um, technology. We use technology to then deliver that mm. and we continue to move with what is relevant technology, but we're not a company that is about just developing apps for whoever or developing stuff in technology for that sense. We, we're very focused around emergency management. Mm. What's um, What's your core... Competency, or maybe I'm not asked. confident. No, <laughs> no um, maybe maybe asked a different way. What's uh, what's your unfair advantage? Yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. The unfair advantage I, I think that we bring to the table is the fact that um, both my business partner and I worked in the sector for a long time. So probably combined between us, we've got about thirty years' experience. Mm. So. That but kind of helps a little bit. It does help. It does help. And neither of us came from an IT background, so that's why I say, you know, we're not a technology company as such um, and we're not academically trained in that space originally. It's something that we've then brought to the table mm-hmm. based on our subject matter expertise, um, got the right people around us so that we can um, enable that. Um, yeah, I think... The subject matter expertise is what would be an unfair advantage and mm-hmm. our, our knowledge, understanding and experience of being in it and knowing what goes on and knowing what not only what the public is looking for but also what the agencies, the industry is trying to achieve too. Yeah. Well, they're some of your main customers, right? Absolutely. I, I think one of the one of the biggest problems is um, in anywhere, like government's great, don't get me wrong, but bureaucracy does stifle innovation yeah and the ex- and, and and the effective execution of innovation like is it really good there's a great bunch of people with great ideas but you know that's the wonderful thing about working in a small company too is you can call the shots and you can actually make make it happen do you think emergency management would be where it is today had you guys not been on the scene um I think there's certain things that probably maybe wouldn't have happened as fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of some of the ways we've antagonised um, the industry in certain ways and, and said, well, hey, you know, why can't you do this? Look this. Hey, look at this. What do you mean antagonised? And, and what I mean by See, it's an interesting choice of words. Antagonised is by saying, well, I know you've got the capability to do it. Why aren't you doing it? Mm-hmm. There you go. I can prove that it's getting can be done. Yeah, because we did it. Because we did it. So you yeah. don't tell me it can't be done. Yeah. So that's probably what I mean by antagonise. 
And again, I'm not having a go. It's just like my previous comment. It's just I know how bloody hard it can be with bureaucracy. That was one of the reasons why we went and did what we did. Because it was easier to actually create change from the outside mm. than on the inside. Um, it creating creating change on the inside, you know, like I was involved in many different things inside, but it, it's just bloody hard. Mm-hmm. So, what's the difference between Emergency Oz, the product, mm. and Ripe Intelligence, the company? Well, one one is the product, one is the company, and there's two different um, two different things. Well, obviously, building building a product is different to building a company. Mm-hmm. Um, How so? I'm curious. Building a company is really interesting. I remember, I remember when we had to pay our first insurance bill, and you just go, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like in, the, in the early days of any company, you're just like going, "Oh my god." This is this is like so expensive, and you like, I think it was maybe what a thousand bucks or something we had to pay for our insurance <laughs> bill, and you're just going, "Holy shit!" Where are you going to find? You know, where are we going to find that kind of money from? Yeah, you know. And then obviously, as you develop and and you get get your company company established, you, you understand what your expenses are. That that's the hardest thing I, I think in those early days of business is understanding what your expenses are going to be. Like once you've done a couple of years of trading, you know that you've got insurance, you know that you've got licensing, you know you've got accountancy fees, you know you've got blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But when you go tomorrow, and especially because we hadn't run a company before, you know, like we weren't going, oh, hey, let's go set up a company tomorrow because like now, like obviously we've got experience now, we know what, yeah. what goes on, we've got data behind us. Um, yes, you can talk to people and yes, you can get an idea, but until you've done it, uh, it's not right. So setting up a company is is challenging. Um, building a product is challenging in a different way. You've that's about obviously creating the, the concept, working out your timelines, your deadlines, how you're going to get it to market, um, making sure that it's all there. Then once you release it, that you know, getting it to the point of release is one part of it. Once you've released the beast, it doesn't stop. Like you're you know, it's you're only you're only as good as what your product is. So if you once you release and if your product's still shit, people aren't gonna like it. So mm-hmm. you you you're constantly listening to customer feedback mm-hmm. and, and reacting to, you know, what their thoughts are and um, how they're interacting with your product and what they want from it. Um, so it doesn't stop just because you've released it. The other thing is that they, your customers come to have this expectation too mm. of, of what they expect from you. So you can't drop your guard. You might go, you know, you, you, you go in the early days when you're, you, you're doing it all and you're doing all this. Well, once, once you've set the, the expectation, you can't stop. So yeah, there's two, there are two, two different sides to it. So, Certainly, building building the company of it is challenging in the early years, and it's like that old saying: once you've got the ball rolling, it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It's just that initial bit of getting the ball rolling is is really hard. Like you look at it today, and I go, oh well, I might want to take on another particular venture, another particular project, or something like that. That's easy because I've got all those processes established. I've got all the bits and pieces in place. So I don't have to keep. I don't have to start from scratch again. 
Yeah, I think you take for granted like all the the processes and the structure and you know the the IT guy and the the finance people and the the receptionist and like all that stuff that exists within companies or government agencies. That's all been set up already when you come along. You just take it for granted. Well, there's, no, there's no such thing as you, the, when you're running your own company. You know, and everyone knows this. There's no such thing as that you just do one thing. Like you are. You are the legal department. Mm-hmm. You are the admin department. You are the catering department. You, you know, you, you are the cleaning department. <laughs> yep. It, it is what it is. Um, but that's what makes it fun too. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover from a, a entrepreneurial standpoint? Maybe like how you built Emergency Oz and, you know, you came up with the idea, right? Mm. But like, how do you bring that to life? Like we've spoken about this. There's a, there's a, there was a long, tough slog of actually building this product before it came to life. I think the early days, the early days of building any product is challenging because you've got to focus on where you're actually going and what you want to actually achieve. And you know, day one, it's exciting. Yeah. And day two is still exciting. But then when you get to day 453, <laughs> you're like, oh, you know, and, and, and I think that's the thing. You just, you got to just keep pushing. Mm-hmm. You got to keep pushing and just keep. I've always said, if, if you, you don't have to ever worry about the money. If you build the right product, the money will come. You know, you, you, you never ever worry about the money. You, you should never do that. You've got to be 150% into what you're doing. If you, if you wish you wish about it, you won't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You've got to be 150% into it. You've got to give it all. Um, and you just got to keep pedaling, pushing and believing in what you're doing. Um, and in those early days, you do, you, you put in a phenomenal amount of hours. And you, and, and if you think that you're going to start a business, and just do nine to five work and have your weekends off, you're joking yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, every day of the week, you work on it. Every hour of the day that you're awake, and mind you, you only probably sleep about four hours a night in the early days. <laughs> I can remember, like, we, you know, and, and we, we started on a back deck. You know, we started on, on my business partner's back deck. That's where a, you know, no different to the table that we're sort of sitting around now, just a kitchen type table. Mm-hmm. That, that was where the, the business started. With the business plan on the back of a napkin? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it started off as, as just bashing away and a few keyboards and, you know, I had this old little laptop that was a server. <laughs> well, you know, and well, that's what makes me laugh now is that, you know, I had this one little, little server that started everything originally to now, you know, we'd have, We'd have well over 150 servers running globally doing a whole range of different things these days mm-hmm. in what we get up to. But, um, you, yeah, you just one day at a time and you just keep, keep going at it. You know, we, we always refused to have an office in the early days. There was never any need to have that. You, you don't want to waste money on things you don't need to waste money on. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, plenty of people told us, oh, no, I'll take you seriously because, you know, you're on a back deck. Well, you know what? Don't take me seriously. But if I've got the right product, you'll still want it. So how do you know if you're working on the right product? Because you said, you know, well, you've it's got to, tough, you, right? Yeah, but you've got to, you, you've, you've got to use your use your learnings from where you've been, where you've come from, and and 
be able to see opportunity. You know, you, you've got to trust that you can, that you believe in yourself and see that opportunity. There's no point doing it if you don't believe in it. Yeah, of course. But there's a big difference between, you know, you said you have to work nearly every hour of the day on something for a long period of time. In your case, it was, you know, basically every waking hour for two two years, right? Two years, you know, and in most companies in the early days, the things you do, you work your guts out. But don't you, do you have doubts along the way about whether this is the right choice? Um, you have highs and lows. I don't know about doubts. Um, you, you know, you go, you know, yeah, you, yeah, yes, you do doubt, but you, but because it's easy right now, sitting around a kitchen table yeah, know, with a Pinot that. Noir and a, you know, you're on a podcast to talk yeah. about how successful you were and and how it was easy, or or maybe not how it was easy, but how you made the right choice because you're working on the right products. But back in the moment when you know you're 400 days in, you've still working on the product. You don't have a huge amount of traction. You don't have any clients on board yet. You're not making an income. I mean, I don't know if all those facts are true, but in, in your oh, yeah, case, yeah, but yeah, like yeah, around yeah, about yeah. there, right? Yeah. Like it's got to be tough at that moment to go, oh, you know, one of these days, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but the next day after that, we'll sign a, a, a contract and get someone on board or we'll we'll launch something that is a game changer or... Yeah, like, it, it, yes, you do have those moments, but you've just got to step back and sometimes keep going. I I think also, too, you've got to have good people around you that um, keep pushing you as well. You know, like, I had some discussions with, you know, some those that are, you know, family and friends that are close to me in those early days. You know, and like I said, you know, I was going to give it six months. Well, mm-hmm. there was people who said to me, well, you're not going to go anywhere for five years. Don't be stupid. You'll give it five years before you go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you got to, you need to go and talk to people that, that are in like situations or have been there and, and get some understanding and thoughts from them. Not, they won't have the answers, but I think they'll help you in your own deliberations of, keeping you moving forward and, and going, you know what? No, I know. I know that I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, so you say you have to talk to people who've been in this situation before or who have some mm-hmm. kind of subject matter expertise. When you're creating a market, which is kind of what you did with emergency hours, who do you talk to? Well, you probably don't talk to anyone about the actual particular product line or product application in, in an industry sense, but you talk to people that have been entrepreneurial and have have taken ideas to market from nothing to something. You know, you all go through that similar type of journey of where you go, God, did I really make the right decision or not, you know, um, and getting that sort of comfort from them, you know, that, that all that ability that they keep pushing you, coaching you forward. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's important. Having having some mentors there as well, and they don't necessarily need to be mentors from an entrepreneurial sense, but, but just even mentors from a life sense as well. And I suppose that's that's probably where my role now, I feel, changes a lot from in the early days where it was just me doing what I'm doing to where now when you have staff and you do that, you find more of your role is being a mentor um, to your staff and also 
and also to like people that are now taking on the journey of being entrepreneurial and being there for them. It's just like returning the favour in some ways. You know, people looked after you now. Now, you, as you see younger people coming up, um, you're there helping them and guiding them and sharing your experiences with them. No different doing this just because you're that, – that's part of what you do because that was the type of stuff that helped you get through it at the time. Well, that's a nice dovetail into the next kind of topic I wanted to talk to you about. What's life like as an entrepreneur? Um, I, I think the best part of it about it is is the freedom. The freedom of it is the uh, the best part. I in what way? Like how are you? Oh, how are you free? I tell you, if I, if I had to set my alarm to get out of bed, I'd be in all sorts of trouble these days. <laughs> I know, serious. Like like I wake up when I wake up. You know, like that might be eight o'clock, nine o'clock, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that. You don't have all that. Oh, I've got to be somewhere by a particular time. Like, you start when you want to start, you finish when you want to finish. Like, obviously, there's commitments, don't get me wrong. Like, there's, there's days where you obviously have to be places and you have to do things, but I'm talking overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that freedom is good. Um, the, the other side of it is that you can integrate your life and work. And I think that's why more and more people are going that way these days where people work from home or are somewhat entrepreneurial because it offers that more that flexibility. Now, I don't, I don't have a family or anything as such, but for those that do, it's certainly, you know, it's like, oh, I just got to duck down the street, pick the kids up or do this. It offers all that flexibility that's probably a, a lot easier to do. The other side of being, being, um, in my position is that I can construct a particular life where, I can work, live, socialise to a point, all in a very contained community. So I don't have to travel three hours to work or, you know, half an hour of work or something like that or I don't have to um, be going miles out of my way. And I think if if you come back to it, that takes a lot of stress out of your life. But there's other stresses. There's other stresses, obviously. You, you know, doing what I do, there's always ups and downs. But you get rid of a lot of all that other crap. Being being your own boss, you, you know, you're not worried about all that other rubbish that you, have you a get in the corporate world. Yeah, but you have a different set of worries though, right? Like uh, how are you going to pay your next bill or how are you – like, yeah, you do You do and you don't. You do and you don't. I – I don't know with worries the right word. You, you, you've got to be, you've got to be prudent and you've got to understand that's the space you're in. I don't, I think that's probably the other thing is where the, the difference is. I don't work in a world of where, um, you, you work week to week. Like to me, I will look at my year and look at how do I structure my year mm-hmm. versus going, well, I don't get paid weekly. You know, that's just not how I structure myself. So it, it, the, the, it can be some massive minds change, mindset changes in how you, how you work in when you work in this space. Um, compared to coming from where you work in the nine to five space of getting paid weekly, fortnightly, which can be quite challenging to people because they go, well, what do you, what do you mean? How do you do that? That was going to be my next question. <laughs> well. You know, people, when I say to people, oh, you know, you only get paid once a year because the way, you know, if you, you 
like many companies, you, you might only take a dividend or, you know, depending on how you structure it, you only take a wage once a year. But then it's no different to getting paid weekly. You've got to, you're just working over that projected period. Yeah, it's just a different way of working. Mm-hmm. Which can be hard for people when they go from that, in that, I reckon the hardest part is that transition phase. So mm-hmm. where you've been working for someone and then you decide to go and take on working in that entrepreneurial work for yourself world, that it's that transitional phase can be challenging. One of the other good things about being an entrepreneur, I'd have to say, is the people, mm-hmm. the friends and the destinations that I get to go. And I think this is, this is probably maybe not so much about being an entrepreneur. This is probably more so about the line of work that I do. Mm-hmm. Being being involved in a technology-type company, in this day and age, you can work from anywhere in the world. Yep. I spend a lot of time working out of Asia. It's given me a lot of opportunity to travel, and that is that is probably one of the great parts about it. These days, you know, with the Skype or Messenger or however, you know, you can – well, it's great in some ways. The worst part about it is that, you know, you've just got home, you've been out for a big night and the next thing is the time zone difference and your staff are like Skyping you and you're just like, oh my God, I'm just getting the bed. Can you leave me alone? <laughs> um, but that's, that's the good part about it is you, you can just be anywhere. Um, and you like one of, one of the things I probably enjoy the most is I have a lot of global friends. Mm. Now you go back. A generation, you know, or not even a generation, to have friends globally, to stay in contact every day, and like, it just it was too too hard. Yeah, you would send people letters, letters, or you could make a phone call, but that was probably pretty expensive at the time. Yeah. Whereas, realistically, it's no different to whether they're around the corner or whether they're mm-hmm. sitting on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. The other, the other nice thing about having global friends is when you work in, in my space, you work long hours. So during the day, obviously, you're dealing with your people here and whatnot. Then late at night, as you're working, you know that you can talk to your friends in Europe because they're awake and they're, they're alive. And so when you've got those quieter nighttime periods because all your Australian friends have gone to bed, you can go annoy all your other friends overseas. <laughs> and, and, and it's just like you've got this community of friends that uh, keep you entertained while you're working. So, how do you solve problems when you're an entrepreneur and you have no boss to go and ask or other people around to help you? I, I think in my case, I'm fortunate that I've got a business partner and I've got a, a really good business partner that I've worked with for many years before we were in business together. Yeah. And, and I've said this to a number of my friends before, you've got to be careful about who you go into business with. Because uh, quite often people will go, oh, you know, my best mate Adam, you know, why, Adam, why don't we go into business? You know, we're good mates and they're big. You've never worked together. Yeah. Look, sometimes it'll work, don't get me wrong. But there's other times that then you go, oh, you, you then start to see the flaws and you realise being mates and being friends t- uh, uh, and then working together. It's different to being Totally different, different yeah. things. People are very different once they get in a work mindset. Well, they can be, and I suppose that was the the fortunate thing about Luke and I. We'd worked together for many years. We knew each other's weeks and strengths. We we knew that we could complement each other in certain areas. Um, so to answer your question, that's what makes it probably easier in my situation is that I've got someone to bounce ideas off. Mm. I I take my hat off to people that are actually solo. 
Because I reckon that's even harder. Because, yeah, okay. Even harder because you don't have that person that is there to, you know, when, when you might be having a bad day, you know, you, you, the other one lifts you up and vice versa and, you know, you've got each other's backs. When you're doing it solo, I think it's probably important that you do have good friends and friends that are like-minded and understand or, mm. or, or peers around you that are in a similar type of space that comprehend what you're up to. So what's been your biggest entrepreneurial challenge? Um, accepting the fact that you've got to sacrifice some things in life to get where you want to get. You know, there was plenty of times, there's plenty of times in those first two years where I didn't go out drinking, I didn't go partying, I didn't go to lots of things. Mm-hmm. And you sacrifice that because you you know that you've just got to keep moving on this other stuff. And you know what? You know that down the track you can make up for it. So so the hardest thing is is, is the sacrifice of that and also the acceptance because some of your friends won't accept it. Mm-hmm. As far as, yes, they'll accept because they're your friends, but I mean as in that they don't understand why you're making such sacrifices because they're not in that space. So you, you need to just accept that sometimes your friends just won't get the journey you're on. And is it just that you know in your own mind you have a vision of where you want to be so you just have to stay focused on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Like you can is eat, that what drives it, you? It's, it, yeah, it's more about the... You know, the short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. And, you know, short-term might be two, three, five years, depending on what you're doing, um, or it could be longer. But it's short-term in the scheme of things. You've got to keep focused on what you're doing. So sacrifice was definitely one of the challenging things of being an entrepreneur in the early days. What's been the best thing? What has been the best thing about being an entrepreneur? Oh, I think I've sort of touched on it before. I think it's the people I meet, the, the places I get to go, and the lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice. It's that wake up when you want, work when – well, you, you've got to work when you've got to work, but it's the work in the environment you want to work in. You know, I can can work from a home environment. I can work from a, a remote island off the Asian coast somewhere in a nice place that's got a good cocktail bar that's serving me copious amounts of cocktails. Yeah. Because I can, as long as they've got internet, I, as, I, can't, I can't do I can't do anything in the wilderness where there's no internet. I, that's a problem. But would you say that you've you've made it yet? No, no, I haven't made it. I've just just tickled it a little bit. Okay, so when will you have made it? The day I own my helicopter. That's the day I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this goal to own a helicopter. Absolutely. Ever since I was a four-year-old, I have had this fascination with being a helicopter pilot and I've done a little bit of flying. But I've always said that I haven't made it until I got my own helicopter. Until you own a helicopter. Own it. Own it, own it and fly it. That's the day I've made it. So when are you going to install the helipad on this uh, I don't know whether on I, the roof? I don't know whether I put it on this place, but uh, <laughs> if, I, if I'm owning a helicopter, there'll be a helipad, you know. <laughs> No, room. I've always I've always had a fascination with helicopters. Always, they've uh, I've got no interest in fixed wings, but uh, you know, there's just something something really cool about helicopters that I've throughout my life. I've just always it's one of those things that probably not many people actually know about me. 
Mm. That, uh, yeah, just this fascination with helicopters. Love them. Why? Oh, just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, as a kid, you know, there's always say as a kid, whether it was a big red fire truck or something else, you know, that, that was the thing that captured your imagination. Helicopters were always the thing that captured my imagination. Mm. So that's a dad, mate. And so- no, you can't have the first try. <laughs> um, and so, so when everyone is, uh, when everyone else is rocking up to their business meetings in Ubers, yeah. you'll fly in on the helicopter. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's just showing And up, you laugh, it? but you know. It's not okay. Thank you for listening to Mate. This was episode number seven. If you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode, you can find them at the website matepodcast.com slash seven. That's the number seven. A big, big thank you to Taryn for coming on the show today. A huge shout out to Courtney Carmen for our amazing looking podcast logo. And the music for today's episode was by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. Now, if you'd like to keep tabs on the next episode of Mate, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mate Podcast. We're also on Facebook. Check out the page there to see our new cover photo flapping majestically in the wind. It's really good. Go check it out. And if you'd like to send me a virtual high five, please leave a review on iTunes like these wonderful people. A big thank you to Charlie Royal, Simon Davenport, Kelly Roach and Tom O'Callaghan. You rock my world and warm my heart. You bring our grand total to 35 five-star reviews as of today's recording. Finally, if you have a guest suggestion for Mate, please hit me up via email. I'm adam at matepodcast.com. This was episode seven of Mate. It was made with passion, love, and dedication in Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now.